Making a no-budget film? It's like going to war. But you're not General MacArthur. Storming the beaches with the force of a hundred thousand soldiers. Instead, you're... You're more like a squad of Viet Cong guerrillas behind enemy lines. Trying to complete an impossible mission using guile and your wits. The odds stacked against you. It's risky, difficult, and dangerous. I can swear to it. I've been there. Well, I think it's time to start this podcast off with our celebratory shot of the Kraken. Release the Kraken! Jude is drinking out of a uh, Nightmare Before Christmas special Jack Skellington shot glass. That's the only way I drink. And I've got sort of a tiki skull clear glass shot. So cheers, mate. Three weeks in the can. Mm -hmm. We're chasing it with some black butte porter. Yeah, we decided that uh, for this podcast, um, but Matt's out of town this week. So the Carol Burnett to the Grindhouse podcast, Mr. Jude S. Walko, (laughs) is stepping in. That's right. Thank you for having me. And we uh, we just kicked off this podcast with a shot of Kraken rum. That's right, from Circus Liquor. That's right, where our subject today most uncertainly must have spent his childhood. I'm sure of it. Grabbing his first drink, Mr. Tim Burton. Timmy, Timmy boy. Chasing it down with a beer afterward. We figured it's a Black Butte Porter, but you could also read it as Black Booty Porter. Booty. What would be appropriate depending, for depending on how you pronounce <laughs> it. <laughs> <laughs> we thought for this week, since uh, Matt's out of town, and we, Jude and I, just went to go see Tim Burton's latest film, Dumbo, at the El Capitan. <laughs> Actual quote from the movie. Yeah. Um, we thought, what better way to, what, what what better way to celebrate Tim Burton, but to have a crack open a couple of drinks, and talk about the legend. That is, we can I can say for you one of your biggest inspirations as a director, if not the biggest inspiration. So, um, I guess I mean I feel like with you talking about Tim Burton is like opening up an encyclopedia. I mean, you know, <laughs> you know pretty much everything there is to know about it. I do. I spent a lot of time reading, uh, you know, all the books about him and magazine articles and inside baseball and stuff. So yeah, I I. I uh, I don't know if I'm an aficionado, but I definitely am a huge fan, and I'm, I try to stay as up on Tim Burton stuff as much as possible, just because uh, he's such an inspiration to me. You know, one of the things it's funny when when you think about modern filmmakers and and big influences that they've had. Most of the inf- most of the directors that have influenced current filmmakers are like the indie darlings. You know, the the um, the Miramax Caters, the uh, Kevin Smith, <laughs> mm-hmm. the Quentin Tarantino, certainly Robert mm-hmm. Rodriguez. Yep. Um, but but amongst those guys who kind of came up the quote unquote indie route was Tim Burton, who, by all accounts, has only been a studio director. Yeah, 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 for sure. And, so I mean, so what? How did you know more than anyone how Tim Burton even got his start? Yeah, so he he went to Cal Arts, which is an awesome school. I'm I'm trying to get my. Uh, daughter in there well that's my hopes she probably doesn't give a shit (laughs) she's a great artist and i i got some context there you know him too the kyoto brothers yeah and uh i know some other people that have taught there anyways he was at color 
Arts, which is essentially a school established by Disney, right. you know, to, to churn out artists and animators and specifically stuff. animators, right? Specifically animators. So that's kind of thing. You go through the channel at Cal, Cal Arts if they see, you know, if you pass the muster and you, your, your your artwork's good, and then they put you in the Disney chain, and then you're animating and, and all that, what have you. So he was an animator back in the day for Disney, which really right. wasn't his cup of tea. Um, and that's also the school where John Lasseter came from, sure. and a bunch of other uh, famous people. I don't know, I'm not sure if Henry Selick went there. I think he did as well. Who actually is the actual director of Nightmare Before Christmas? Right, a lot of people um, kind of overlook that. <laughs> they do, <laughs> um, but they they were all classmates. And you know, side note, you'll see A113 in a lot of Pixar movies and stuff. That's the classroom they were all in. So right. anytime you see that A113, it's a shout out to them. But anyways, he went there, and uh, he was a Disney animator, and he wasn't really. You know, you know. Of course, they were like Tim, buddy. This is too dark. Tone it down, brother. Sure. Uh, you're just not. You know. You know how Disney's. They have their standard look. Yes, right. And uh, you know, they were like, "Man, you're super talented, but we just, we're just not feeling it." I think he did some Fox and the Hound back in the day. I want to say he might have worked on that, and okay. I think the Black Cauldron and some other stuff. Um, so, as an actual animator, or as an just, animator. Oh, yeah. right. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. He was just he was just drawing. He, they they actually ha- there's actually a footage of him really young, like in his twenties, um, and somebody walks in. I can't remember who, and he's just sitting there in a room with all his drawings in this tiny little room, and they just stuck him in the room, and they basically said, you know, draw, draw, draw. That's amazing. And he did, and and you know he just he wasn't putting that little Disney two step in it that they like. That's right. Well, it's funny because Black Cauldron. <laughs> Isn't really your standard Disney film anyway. Right, yeah. yeah. You would think somebody would have jumped on that. And, uh, well, somebody did, but not in the traditional sense. So there's this guy named uh, Richard Zanuck, who's a very famous producer. He's dead now, but his family history comes from, I think his father once owned Fox Studios or ran Fox Studios and all that. And he he ended up being one of the most prolific producers of all time. So he saw little Timmy Burton in there, and he was like, man... You got a lot of fucking potential. I just don't know what it is yet because you, right. you don't fit into the Disney box, you know. Yeah, right. So Richard Zanuck's really the guy that was responsible for Tim's career, and he started giving him a chance. Like back in the day, he did uh, he did a Hansel and Gretel live action episode. Oh right, I remember yeah, that. Yeah, which was for like some little like fairy tale theater thing. Because we we actually went a few years back on one of the many projects that we've done together. Yeah. I think it was actually the one we worked on for Disney. Mm-hmm. Um, we went to the Tim Burton exhibit yeah. out here in Los Angeles at the LACMA. Yeah, it was in town. And uh, Tim Burton was there signing. <laughs> we have some great stories yeah. <laughs> about that day. Yeah, and I think they had clips of they that, that uh, Hansel and Gretel live action, whatever. It was very like Masterpiece Theater-esque. But exactly like... what it was. It was Masterpiece Theater for kids and Shelley yeah. Duvall was the host. Yeah, right. And I think Richard Zanuck knew Shelley Duvall and he was like, hey... I got this great guy. Why don't I, you know, he's got all this potential. I don't know. Can you let him, let's let him direct an episode, essentially, was what it was. Right. And he got Hansel and Gretel. And oddly enough, so some back, there's a lot, so much backstory. We could, <laughs> I feel like right. I could, I could talk so much about that already. But, um, but basically, so the Kyoto brothers had these block of storyboards from, uh, from that. Hansel and Gretel episode, right? right? right. Stephen Kyoto had it, and he had he had shown them to me, and he I kept them on my desk for like you know a month the on that show, yeah. yeah. And then so we we went to you and I went to see Tim Burton at the signing. The the line was around the block like three times. Yeah, that's right. Um, so that that crazy day, 
you you went online on your phone and you're like, hey, there's one fucking ticket left to go see the screening of Ed Wood, I think it was. Right. And you're like, there's only one left, man. You do it. You're the Tim Burton fan. So you snagged that ticket for yeah. me. So I got it. We And we both got in there in line to meet him. Yeah, like, right. We were the very last guy. No, what's funny story is like, you know, the line to get in. I mean, the line to see the exhibit was, you know, you could go see the exhibit, but, but Tim Burton was doing a signing. And so... Yeah. The line to actually get your little, you know, art book signed yeah. was so long. It was wrapped around the block, and there were guards coming up and down being like, hey, guys, this yeah. is the cutoff. Yeah. You're never going to get in. Yeah. It's, you know, might as well go home. Like, it's never going to happen. And they yeah. did, like, four or five times. Yeah. They were, we were just like, go home. And we were just like, you know what? Fuck it. When he goes home, we, we go, go home. home. That's right. And and we stayed, and we got in. And we got in. I got a photo of you sort of with Timmy in the background. And yeah. Um, you know, you got to, I don't know if you shook his hand, I don't recall. I did, was, I shook yeah. his, he, he was signing, I, th- I think he was left-handed, I can't remember, and he was signing, and he, he, like, awkwardly took his right hand and, like, shook my hand like that. Right. And, and, uh, I, I can't remember, uh, if I had the book or I had a picture, but of the, of the storyboards, right? Oh, so yeah. it's like, so I was like, hey, I want, I just want it to, you know, he had all his entourage there. And I was like, hey, I just want to show Tim something. And they're like, what? What do you want to show him? And I was like, just let him look at it. Like, just all I'm saying is look at it. He looks at it, and it's his fucking storyboards from like 40, whatever, 30, 40 years ago. Right, right. And he's like, he's like, holy shit, man, where did you get this? And I was like, you know, the Kyoto, this is the Kyoto Brothers. They showed it to me. And he's like, man, that brings back memories. And that was our little interaction. Little moment, yeah. And then, uh, and then he hosted the Ed Wood, and we ended up seeing. There was a crazy story after that, though. So I'm waiting around. I think you left because I went to see the movie you went to go see the screening, yeah. that, that Tim Burton was hosting. So the end of the night, I'm standing on the sidewalk at, at LACMA where all those posts of lights are, you know. It's right. like that bank of, of lamp posts. And I just hear, thanks, Tim. Cool, man. Thanks, man. We'll see you in the next one. And this, all these people come out from the theater, like the curator, from the uh, museum and the curators, like 10 of them. Right. And this black SUV shows up That's and cool. Tim comes out and I see him and I have, I think, I can't remember if I had, I think I had, I guess must have had my cell phone, but this is a while back, so it's a shitty cell phone. And I snapped a picture, but for some reason it like didn't, something super happened. Super blurry, I think I remember. Super blurry. So the next day I took it in to Eric, Eric Atkins because we were working on the oh, Disney yeah. show. Right. And he was the DP. And I was like, hey, can you pull from this picture? And he did. And in that, you could clearly see it's Tim Burton, but it's all it's all grainy. grainy. Yeah, it's right. like the Zapruder film this or was, Bigfoot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, but it was definitely there. But yeah, that was cool because I, I ran into him again. And then, and then I was lucky enough to meet him. This conversation is going to go all over the place because that's, that's just it. what it is. That's right. That's uh, what we're here. <laughs> a special episode where we just get to drink and talk to Burton. I, I love it. Booze uh, and Burton. Well, yeah, exactly. Booze <laughs> and Burton. Uh, I got to meet him again um, uh, for a little bit longer time at his uh, his Hollywood uh, – at the Man's Chinese Theater. It's now called TCL Theater. Oh, right, yeah. Um, it's always be, it'll and, always be the man's. It, it always – can't fight the man. <laughs> so they <laughs> – so that's where they put, for those of you not in L.A., that's where, the, where they put the hands and the feet print in the concrete outside the theater. It's, world, it's pretty world famous. All the tourists see it. It's on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. So it was his day, and I just happened to be in town probably working with you on a project, and I see this banner that says, Tim Burton signing a uh, Hollywood Walk of Fame, blah, 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 whatever, on this date. So I got out that, I think I... Played hooky that day from work or yeah, something. Yeah, I think so, yeah. And I got out there, and there's, again, there's a line of three, 400 people. Right. I don't have tickets. I don't have nothing. I'm just like, fuck it. I'm here to see Tim Burton. I'm the world's biggest fan. I'm going to see him. Right. So I stand in line, um, 
And then I start talking to people, and I'm like, hey, you got an extra ticket? Finally, someone says, hey, man, yeah, I got, I downloaded like five on my phone. Just just take a snapshot of this digital ticket. Damn. I did. They, they walk through, and I'm again, I'm like the cutoff guy. I'm like the last yeah. guy to yeah. get in. They give us the thing. Um, so we, and f- the way they organized it, we were like front in line. The, the back was first, right? Like they, it, they right. backwards engineered it. So the people in the back were actually in the front. Right. So I was standing right there. So Tim comes up when Nona Ryder was there. Um, Martin Landau was there yeah, before yeah. he died. So it, everyone was there. And then my, my friend Derek, Derek, who wore, who's now Tim's producer was there. Right. And I saw him. He was like five feet in front of me, and I was like, "Derek, what's up, dude?" And he was like, "Dude, what are you doing here?" And I was like, "Man, I I just came to see this." And then at the end of the day, Martin Landau was leaving, and uh, I got a I talked to him, and I got a picture with him and stuff. And I was like, "He's a legend, man, icon." Yeah, well, it's funny. We were talking just today. We were talking about how, you know, we can work on projects for other people forever, but the yeah. dream is always to do stuff for ourselves or to support each other. And I think that one of the ways when we started working with each other, other than just sort of having maybe a similar work ethic, was sort of a fascination and an appreciation for all things Tim Burton. Yes. Um, and, and I think that part of what has been an enduring quality of his is his ability to appeal to sort of the misfits of society, mm-hmm. you know, to sort of appeal to the freaks. Like last episode, I think we were talking about, um, Matt and I were talking about how, how you know, the best kind of horror films are the ones that are a little bit avant-garde, they're a little bit weirder, and and it's where the freaks come to play, right? Yeah. And you need that. You need that sort of unsanitized sort of punk rock ethic in filmmaking to make things interesting. Like, you're always going to have your nice, clean, you know, Marvel films right. or, like, you know, traditional Disney or whatever. But um, you need the sort of the, the people who think outside the box, the who, people who don't quite fit in the, the, the sort of the misfits yeah. to really make filmmaking interesting. Yeah. And I, I don't know of anyone who more resembles that than Tim Burton. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I, I think too, like the good thing about Tim Burton, people first, especially for people of my age and even people a little older, because Tim's probably about 10 years older um, than me and my generation, but basically, he also he has this tremendous nostalgia for things that once were. So, like whether that be old sci-fi films or old horror move, movies or schlocky, like you know, Dark Shadows as a whole thing, and Hammer films and oh, the old Alien movies. You know, Mars Attacks was yeah. inspired by all that. So, so he also uh, like. If you're if you're of that era, or you even even if you just appreciate that era, there's like this nostalgia that comes with Tim Burton films that no one else is until recently is really tapping into that too. Right. So he's like, he's like, take this uh, thing that you this magic and Dumbo's a definite part of this. Take right. this magic you felt as a child. Like what was that thing that just made you feel really awesome as a child? That that feeling that you couldn't quite put your finger on. What made you feel that way? And he tries to bring that thing back, but unlike a lot of things, he doesn't just like corporatize it and stamp a label on it and and char- upcharge you for it. Right. He tries to keep. He takes what he even said this in an interview about Dumbo. He he basically takes whatever grabbed those heartstrings, whatever takes those feelings, and he tries to amplify it. Right. So he didn't exactly revisit the entire Dumbo story like word for word, scene for scene. Right. He took the 
the essential elements and the things that g- made him feel those things, and then he just made them Burton and, right. and amplified them for the well, audience. And and one of the things that is a, a key element of Dumbo is the idea of family. Yes, you know, in the original Disney cartoon, it's it's the character. It's all. All the animals are anthropomorphic, and uh, <laughs> we need more beers. We do, or less. <laughs> and um, it's the it's the relationship between Dumbo and his mom Jumbo. Yeah. And I think in the Burton film, he that that element still exists, of course. But in this film, that the animals are not humanized really. Right. Outside of maybe their eyes, right? Yeah. Where they convey emotion through their eyes, but yeah, there's a there's an actual human element in it, and you know, Colin Farrell plays a, a father. Who, who went to war and came back missing an arm. Yep. And he's got two small kids that he previously yep. was raising in the circus, and their mom has died. So right. there's a lot of elements there that are very Burton-esque. Even if the aesthetic is toned way down, there's the idea yeah. of family, which I think, and connecting and relationships, which are the, the bedrock of every Tim Burton film, yeah. along with the feeling of not being missing, uh, not being understood and not being right. part of Like, you know, you, you've got a person who now is missing an arm, right? So yeah, forever they'll and, be looked at the person who's missing the arm. Yeah, got... and, and also, when you were saying that, it made me think, like, family, but also, like, the alienation, like, orphans is a huge thing. Orphans, exactly, like, yeah. Edward Scissorhand was orphaned by right. Vincent Price. You know, it's like uh, uh, Batman was an orphan, and, uh, you know, Mrs. Peregrine's uh, Home for Peculiar Children are all orphans and misfits. Yeah. It's like it's kind of like well, Dumbo's. We talked orphan. about Big Fish. The the father dies. Yeah. Spoilers for a fifteen year old movie. <laughs> uh, you know the father dies in it. So the these themes of alienation and um, disassociation, social pariah. Yeah, they, they run rampant. And I think in this film he did a really good job of doing it in a more subtle way than you traditionally think with Tim Burton. Yeah. Um, you know, and also like. Kids not being understood by parents. Yeah, absolutely. That's you know? a big one. And then, so by the time you actually get to the elephant, which again doesn't speak in this film, spoilers. <laughs> just it's all through the eyes, which yeah. I think he kind of picked up from the movie Big Eyes. Yeah, that he also directed, which yeah. was a little off, off kilter for him traditionally. Yeah. Um, you're you're surrounded with themes that that it actually allows the character of Dumbo to emote in a way that you might not have otherwise gotten. Yeah, because he's he's his emotions are echoed in the human characters, and so you're able to really connect without dialogue being spoken by any of the animals. Right, totally. Um, Which is a pretty amazing feat, feat, you know. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, you know, because how many Disney movies animals are talking? Well, like, that's, that's all of their, them. That's their deal. And and <laughs> you could certainly make the argument. I love Disney. You know, I mean, I I love indie. Yeah. This, this podcast is very much an indie podcast. Yeah. But there's something special about Disney yeah. and um, that that sentiment that he was trying to access in Dumbo. Maybe he's always trying to access in his films. Yeah, I I, I feel like that's kind of his goal in life is to uh, bring bring you bring you back to that because I feel like he's he's spoken outright about how what horrible things have happened to him in the studio system planet of the apes was a horrible movie for right. him to make a horrible experience some of the batman stuff you know later on in the in the sequel batman returns um and then uh so and and then the whole superman versus batman right. fiasco or whatever that was that movie was called with nick cage that never happened so i think i think maybe it's being the age i am but i feel like you know like like i said earlier like like for example, 
Um, like Meltdown Comics is a good example. They used to be right. – they were cool, right? Amoeba Records, another example. They're a cool place. But now it's like – it's quote-unquote hipster. It's cool to be cool, right? Sure. So that becomes mainstream now. Well, Meltdown is not even there anymore. Oh, it is? No, it's gone. <laughs> there Amoeba, you go. Amoeba's on its way to be renamed. Yeah, exactly. So, but it's like anything now is like so canned and so corporatized and commercialized that it's it no longer has that magic feeling to it. Like everything has the little C with the circle underneath it, the trademark symbol. Like now it's a thing, right? So yeah. where where and I feel like Burton, what Burton's trying to do is, he's trying to, he he knows he's got to make those studio systems. Of course, he's making bank on them, and you know they made him and they'll break him. He's got it. He can't buck the system too much. But within that system, he can. He can make it not so. I, I could just picture him in a room with a bunch of Disney execs going, "This fucking elephant's not going to talk," you know? Like, right. He's going to do his own thing. He's Tim Burton. He's got his fan base. He's got an, a, a huge base even outside of his fan base. Everyone's going to go see his movies regardless. Right. So he does have that power, and I feel like he's trying to let us capture that a little bit of imagination. Like he, I feel like he was the first director they started saying reimagined by Tim Burton. That was like a thing, you know? And then they started saying it for everybody, but it was like re-engineering. Well, because, because what he always brought to the table was a very unique, a very unique, um, vision. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And it's not so much unique in, in the sense of, um, it's not really so much unique in the sense that, you know, you've never seen it before. Obviously, um, he had, you know, he had inspirations, Edward Gorey, yeah. um, the Hammer films, as you mentioned, yeah. all the sort of, you know, Ed Wood, um, Ed all, Wood yeah. you know, all those filmmakers that, that create these, in these creature features and, yeah. you know, the, he, but he took all of that. And even, yeah. even with the influences that he has, like you can look at a Tim Burton drawing and you can know it's a Tim Burton drawing. Exactly. You know, um, the reason that so many people think that Tim Burton directed Nightmare Before Christmas is yeah. because it is so quintessentially <laughs> yeah. Tim Burton yeah. that it's mind-blowing to think that anyone else could have could have even directed. That's a, yeah. I think that's the tip of the hat to... Um, Henry Selleck. Yeah, who, who actually did direct it. Because like, yeah. to take someone's vision, which is as unique as Tim's, yeah. and to process it in a way that i'm sure is still his yeah you know uh, he did caroline and yeah, he did, Orange he Beach, did right? coraline yeah and and also i uh, i uh, know tim, tim i think produced james and the giant peach which is similar kind of story right all and, very similar aesthetics yeah but you know there's a unique a very unique vision behind what he does yeah and and you know as often happens over time that vision may have gotten mocked and certainly yeah. His numerous outings with Johnny Depp, it, yeah. no matter the fact that most of them, if not all of them, have been fantastic, but certainly yeah. most of them. Yeah. Um, over time, that gets kind of mocked, and you know, Helen Bonner Carter's in every film, Johnny Depp's in every film. Like, yeah, yeah. But um, <laughs> he has a history of casting his love interest. That's right. <laughs> or maybe they, maybe he he gets love interest from casting. I'm not sure. Which. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But but you know, there's a very unique thing that he does and um yeah in terms of directors who have a vision yeah it's hard you know like that gets tossed around a ton but it's not as you it's not as common as you yeah. think like, you know because you could, you could look at steven spielberg and george lucas but they were really at the tail end of that 70s class yeah for sure you know but tim was really the yeah. guy in the mid 80s late 80s who was yeah. breaking out and who was influencing people with um yeah uh you know Wee's big adventure certainly but yeah. but i think the biggest one and the one that i yeah. Remember the most is um, 
Edward Scissorhands. I mean, Edward Scissorhands. You can watch it a hundred times, and you still get that feeling that fucking where they're dancing in the snow scene where he's shaving the ice with Winona Ryder. I mean, the, it's the, like the, it the gets, ice dance. It gets you every time, man. There's like, and that's it's such a it's such a full, complete, wholesome yet simple story. Like it's like it's so simple. The people were always we're always arguing about keeping scripts simple and not overcomplicated right. with too many characters. We, and we stuff. say that all the time. That's that's like half our job. But yet that story, Edward Scissorhands, is so bare bones, and it's probably I would argue one of his greatest films. I mean, uh, yeah. surely one of his greatest films. I mean, you could look at it as a spiritual successor to Frankenstein. Yeah, exactly. You know, the, the universal version of Frankenstein, yeah. not so much about Shelley's book, but right. Um, in it, though, he he takes the creature. He takes that moment in the Universal film yep. where Frankenstein has a sort of Mice of Men moment with the little girl and the daisy, you know? Yep. He takes that that particular part of the film and he expands upon it. And he's like, you know, you, you, it's the same thing that you see with like a now more currently like Guillermo del Toro does with like Shape of Water, right? Yeah. You know, goes back and watches one of my favorite universal horror films, Creature of the Black Lagoon. Yep. And he makes a film where the creature is the love interest, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And um, that's great. And I think what Tim did is he basically took the idea of Frankenstein because obviously it resonated with him. This guy who didn't fit in, who you know was looked as a creature, even if he made yeah. good intentions. Yeah. And he he made a whole film about it, and he took yeah. his own aesthetic, and he it's very you could see it like he's like he took himself. And he imagined himself as a Frankenstein monster. Yeah, which may may be what his esteem was at at the. I'm sure at the time. I'm like, sure we we keep joking about like circus slicker, you know. We, uh, <laughs> for those who don't know, Tim Burton grew up in Burbank, California, which is yeah. one of my favorite parts of town on Evergreen Street. Yeah, but you wouldn't you wouldn't think it that when you think of like Tim Burton's aesthetic, you wouldn't think that that's the place he grew up because it's yeah. a pretty it's pretty uh, suburban esque. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He talks about that often. I mean, it's like. Clearly, his childhood was extremely influenced by that area, and, and he, he said in a lot of interviews, like, it was sort of this, you know, juxtaposition of, like, kind of like a Stepford Wives thing, because right. you had this suburb, there was a little church on every corner in Burbank, and it's like this small town, but, like, every everything is fake, you know, it's like, yeah. a, it's like a studio backlot, you know, and then people, especially in the 50s, when he was a little kid. That's a great way to describe it, because... The two biggest studios in the world <laughs> are that, there. They're right there. They're right there. So it's ba- it basically is a back lot to Hollywood. Right. But it's cool because like the street he grew up on, at least a, I don't know. I think it's where he grew up on, and then his grandparents are there on Evergreen. There's the Valhalla Brothers Cemetery behind him, and he also he often talks about being a little kid, and there's like these big creepy oak trees and stuff, um, in this cemetery. Right. And you could just imagine being a little kid, and some of us, you and I included, yeah. that like those. You know, we like. We like ghost tours. We like goth stuff and macabre and death and skulls and stuff. And just imagine growing up right next to a cemetery as a little kid, and just being able to wander over there in the in the night with the fog yeah. is always settling there. It's just cool. Well, well both you know, both of us grew up and uh, in the South. You know, yeah. you in Georgia. Yeah. On the Tennessee border. Yeah, Tennessee, Alabama. And me, border, me yeah. in South Texas, and on the you know a couple hours from the Mexican border. Yeah. But. Where we grew up, you know, old cemeteries are a dime a dozen. Yeah, you exactly. Know, for every church, there's a cemetery. Yeah. So, you know, teen, you know, romps through the graveyard was a common thing. Right. And so yeah. the, you could see, you know, you know, if you look at his appearance, he's this kinky-haired kid with yeah. like, kind of skinny and nerdy. And, yeah, yeah. You know, clearly really into things that at the time would not have been popular. Yeah. 
you know, and he's able to take those influences and he's able to find solace in a place that other people would stay away from. Yeah. You know, we look at superhero movies now, like, you know, how big they've gotten, like Avengers, which is just about to come out, but it really all starts with Batman 89. It does, and, and you think about Batman, first of all, Michael Keaton, Jack Nicholson, Kim Bassinger, come on, what the hell. But But you think about it and there's no crazy visual effects you know there's some special effects and but it's a lot of it's practical it's a simple story there's no it's not like what we've come to expect today where 75 80 percent of the movie is just cg ridiculousness like you might right. as well shoot it in space because that's what you're showing just it almost looks like a video game right like but but that batman they're in Gotham, man. They're on the streets. It's a, it's on a back lot, you know. It's on Pinewood Studios or whatever. It's those, it's real sets, Rick Heinrich sets or whatever. They're just built practically, and 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 the story is what carries it, and, and the performances. I mean, Michael Keaton, right? Still which, one of the greatest actors of all time. So glad did, he came back. The uh, did he do Beetlejuice before Batman eighty nine? He I did. Think he right? did. Yeah, it was Beetlejuice then Batman. It's Pee Wee Beetlejuice. Batman, and then Scissorhands, I think. Something like that. Right, right. So very early on, setting the tone for yeah. his characters being, you know, his protagonist being oddballs. Right. You know, because really the protagonist of Beetlejuice is not Beetlejuice, it's not Michael Keaton, it's the dead no. family. Yeah, yeah. It's Alec Baldwin. It's that, and and, and, and uh, the girl, you know, Lydia is the outcast because her family, remember, they're like so prim and proper and they want to show everything, everybody that they're perfect and then she's all gothy and crazy and she can relate, she can't relate to her own parents but she can relate to these ghosts in the, right. in the attic or and, whatever. And that's the funny thing to think of, like everyone thinks of Tim Burton films or, or maybe they think of goth culture, certainly mall goth culture yeah. as being so Burton-esque, right? right? You could look at when I was growing up, t- you know, Hot Topic Hot having all the Tim Burton stuff, yeah, and yeah, yeah. Um, you know, Lydia Dietz same. My whole my whole life is a dark room, one <laughs> big dark room. <laughs> yeah. But you know, when he was making films, it was right in the core of the goth. It wasn't like goth had come out and had found an audience right. and had become mainstream, and then he tapped into it. Like like a lot of his other influences, like yeah. When he was making these films, this is right at the peak, at yeah. the core of like The Cure and Depeche Mode. Yeah, and, exactly. And all I mean, you can certainly look at a lot of his characters and even his hairstyle is very Robert Smith. <laughs> yeah, Susie, he did pretty much. Susie and the Banshees, yeah, very he, influenced. He just needs the pale face makeup and he's good. So one of the other things we talked about was there being a little bit of a shift in Tim Burton's style post Big Fish. Yeah. I think if you look at films previous to Big Fish... They're what you. They're like they're classic Burton films, right? They've yeah. got the black and white stripes, yeah. you know, motif. They've yeah. got, um, you know, they've got the they've got the kinky haired characters or the you know the very strange, very Ed Woodian like. Yeah. But at, from Big Fish on, which was yeah, just after the death of his father. Yeah. You started to see some people might make considered a, a maturity, but certainly a diversifying of aesthetic in the stories that he was telling. Yeah, yeah, I think. Uh... I think, you know, he he kind of got it out of his system, and he he wants to create a completely fantastical world, right? Immersive, that's immersive. That's different than anything else. And Big Fish was a great example of that. Right. You got the car in the water and the giant guy. And he tried to create. Uh, he tries to create this fully immersive fantasy experience that he's become really good at. Like I think. I think 
maybe Alice in Wonderland was a bit overkill, but I'm sure definitely could see that that wasn't that wasn't necessarily all his decision. I think that was just a big Disney like, hey, we're gonna you know Lewis Carroll, we're gonna. We're going to fuck this up big time. So they, <laughs> turn so, it up to 13. Yeah, turn it up to 13. Eleven would have been fine. Right, exactly. exactly. <laughs> but but you see, especially with Dumbo, Mrs. Peregrine's Big Fish, he's, he's, stored, he's sort of reinvented his aesthetic. Like he got like, he got the loner, gothy, almost horror-esque stuff out of his system. Right. He's like, I, I'm known for that. I did that. I made myself famous for that. I no longer need to, you know go there and now he's he's created this awesome fantasy world that kind of borderlines reality all those movies take place in re, in in real time in real places but then weird crazy shit starts to happen and it has this awesome burton aesthetic and he does he gives he throws back the hints like his characters still have big eyes they the the black and white yeah things are everywhere it's you still know. the vision right you know, from the vision the, of tim burton the it's still there. jack skellington still pops up in all kinds of movies and and stuff but but he's no longer married to only that like he's grown as a director and it right. shows you know yeah. like and and his journey's great because we fell in love with him with at peewee yeah you had me at hello you know right. <laughs> <laughs> even before you know fucking vincent is one of the greatest films well, it's crazy. shorts it, of all it, time it, it's crazy because there's very few directors that just get it right right out the gate mm-hmm. and he's one of them yeah you know, he is um Vincent is fantastic. Frank and Weenie. Frank and Weenie is so good. Both, both, both the original and the remake, yeah. right? Or the uh, I guess the feature length version of yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you're right. Like we, when he was a young filmmaker, it appealed to us as young audience members. Yeah. And as he matured as a filmmaker and as a man, we we traveled with him. Yeah. You know, at the point of Big Fish coming out, we some of us had experienced you know, loss of grandparents or loss of parents perhaps or siblings yeah. or whatever. We'd understood that kind of loss. Yeah. That maybe in the Edward Scissorhands era we might not have. Yeah, absolutely true. Um you know when you start thinking about Dumbo, right? Like yeah. Tim Burton to my knowledge does he have a kid? I guess he does, right? Yeah, he has yeah, a he couple father. kids with Helena Bottom Carter. Right, yeah. so now he's a father. Yeah. Right? Right. And, and while I don't have kids, you certainly do and yeah. and um shout out to Jude's kids. <laughs> and um you know Again, that audience now is in their late 30s, early 40s, mid 40s, 50s, yeah. you know, and like yeah. now they're traveling that path with him. Yeah. You know, but it's still open to the new generation to catch on because, you know, yeah. they can relate to the kids or maybe they just relate to the animal, whatever it may be. Yeah. You know, that, and that's kind of the magic of a, of a, of a classic storyteller. It's, it's, you know? yeah, it's so great. Like, <laughs> speaking of my own kids, of course, because of me, they've grown up on Tim Burton films, right? right? It's like we've in, watched... In, and I think we've established this, but I want to keep in context. Jude's <laughs> kids are are Thai. Yes. In Thailand. Yes. Not in America, certainly not in Los Angeles. Like, <laughs> yeah. This is a culture that is not... And to my, please feel free to correct me if I'm wrong. Like, <laughs> no, it is not. Not... It doesn't have hot topics on every and, and corner. The funny thing is in Thai culture, they're extremely superstitious. And anything to do with death or ghosts, they're like... You know that's that's bad juju. That's bad karma. That's bad feng shui or whatever. So, borrowing from the Chinese. So in our house, in most Thai homes, they don't have anything to deal with death because they're like, oh, that's gonna invite bad spirits and stuff. My house, you walk in, there's skull skeletons, <laughs> Jack Skeleton, Corpse Bride. You know, a hundred Tim Burton books, a hundred Tim Burton movies, and, and my kids 
my kids grew up on that, and it's kind of cool. Like you know, my daughter is she's kind of emo now, and <laughs> she wears all black. Dance cloth. Yeah, she wears all black and has little bangs and stuff. And I'm like, you go, girl. Yes, I raised you right. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah, it's co- gr- great aesthetic. I love it. I, I love to see them. But like you said, for the next generation, it's cool to see the next generation. Just like they don't have the the Tim Burton background that we necessarily have because we grew up like right behind him or with him. Right. Um, so they're seeing it with fresh eyes, but it still works. Like That's right. my kids watch Tim Burton movies and they love them. I mean, we watched Corpse Bride, even even Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, man, a hundred times. I'm not exaggerating. But I think, you know? again, to go back to storytelling, and it may be something that we don't emphasize enough on the podcast, which is that filmmaking is just campfire storytelling. Yeah, it's the oldest. It's yeah. the oldest possible version of communication. It, it is exactly. And uh, the thing that I love about cinema is that the, when you get the good ones mm-hmm. who can who can storytell in a unique way. Yeah. Uh, often, what's make what makes them so good is that their storytelling skills are universal. Yeah. You know, and they appeal right. to any to any generation, even cross cultural. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So, because there's been such a transition in. The style of Tim Burton to some degree, yeah. right? Even down to like Danny Elfman's musical yeah. slidings per track. Yeah. yeah. What is um like? What are your what are what are a couple? Because I'm sure you could go on forever. But like, <laughs> what's a couple of your favorite Tim Burton films? And then conversely, what are a couple of the Tim Burton films that you that didn't quite hit for you in the way? Yeah. That maybe they normally do. Yeah. So I mean, my my probably favorite for some reason. Well, lots of reasons. Personally, is Corpse Bride, mm-hmm. um, and because it's I like classic literature a lot. Yeah, and that 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 movie is actually based on a poem. I don't know if it's a Russian poem or what. I, I didn't know, know that. I, yeah, it's based on a poem, basically where similar to the story where a guy, you know, marries the wrong bride and ends up being a dead bride and whatever. So and I'm I'm a big fan of uh, Edgar Allan Poe and Annabelle Lee right. has a very similar thing. And we didn't even talk about those being uh, Burton <laughs> yeah. influences, but clearly they are. Yeah, like his all his influences, you know, like Vincent Price and all those things. And so I just I felt I felt drawn to that movie. Right. And I'm a huge stop motion animation film the uh, fan. The first movie I ever saw in the theater, I was probably. I don't know, five years old or super young. My brother took me to see Jason and the Argonauts, which was, oh, yeah. which has the famous stop motion scene, which I have that tattooed on my arm. With the skeleton army, with the skeleton army, where they come up and fight him, which is Ray Harryhausen and and Tim Burton took the art of sta- uh, stop motion animation to a new level. Like it, it was kind of a, it was almost dying. At oh, that absolutely, point. yeah. I mean, I think the closest was Gumby. Yeah, well, Gumby, exactly. Yeah, it, it was, was very more... schlocky. It was like not yeah. a thing. And 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 the artists were dying off, and and it was just was never used, and it was expensive, and people are like, you know, this is this is just an old uh, thing. And with CG, the birth of CG, it's like, why do we need armatures anymore? But Tim was like, fuck that, because he's a big. Harry, like he praises Harryhausen as his inspiration, sure. one of his inspirations. Um, so, as you know, you know, uh, Nightmare Before Christmas, Corpse Bride, the Frank and Weenie remake, and on and on and on. Even even in Peregrine and others, he always has like stop motion sequences because he's such a big fan. And when I saw that as a kid, people talk about the tactile, like tangible feeling you see in a stop motion because it's not perfect, right? Right, and because, that's what makes it kind of intriguing. That's what makes it intriguing because each frame is like a piece of art. It's not crystal clear, glossed over. It's like some artist, some person or people 
put all their efforts into making this single frame and it changes and it's it's dynamic so he perfected that so i you know between the stop motion the characters the aesthetic of tim burton the music everything i I, corpse bride is probably my favorite um of all time tim burton and then and then uh story-wise again i think edward scissorhands is perhaps one of his greatest films if not the greatest film he made it's just you can go you can go to the well on that a hundred times and it never gets old the two that i least like uh which is that's you know, I gotta say that me saying least like means sure. it's only a nine point eight instead of yeah, a right. Ten We're on the curve. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I would never talk. I'm just such a. I just love everything he does. You know, but uh, I would say probably um, Alice in Wonderland mm-hmm. uh, because I feel like I feel like it went like I already said this. It went too far into the CG world and it kind of lost its track on the story points at some point and. Uh, it it like that could have been a, a much simpler movie like yep. it was a beautiful movie and the aesthetic was beautiful but once you get into the end and the plot spoilers and the chess chess piece and the vandersnatch and the fucking dragon and it's it becomes a video game and at that point right. i don't go to see tim burton movies to watch video games yeah so my mine kind of alternate so I'll, I'll go with the one that's my dead fast never changes that sleepy hollow yeah that's great there's something about that movie that just it hits on every beat that you love about Tim Burton. It's yeah. got the oddball protagonist. It's got a certain level of creature featureness. Yeah. There's an element of horror which is not really found in Tim Burton films. It's certainly true. He certainly might be a master of macabre, but he's not a horror director. Yeah. In fact, off the top of my head, Sleepy Hollow might be the only horror film that he's ever done. Yeah, they're they're not really horror. They have horror elements. Sure, but, but like really... you know, they're not. So, but this one was like was Beetlejuice like a... is comedic almost. Yeah, is it horror? Not really. No, it's a comedy. It's a dark comedy. It's a dark comedy. And so the Beetle, uh, Batman is an action film. Dark and... Shadows is a dark comedy. Yeah. So if you look at Tim Burton's film, he doesn't really traditionally have horror films, and this was his only role attempt at it and because yeah, i sure. love the imagery of halloween that movie and america and americana horror i think is highly underrated yes i think don't get me started on yeah. washington irving <laughs> sleepy hollow where i own a grave plot very that's thank you true. very much that's true. and then you know as i got older i think i might have mentioned this on a previous podcast as well but ed wood oh it's so good because again, as as a guy who's such a fan of the idea of the concept of indie filmmaking, yes. like, I don't know how you could not no. ha- like relate to Ed Wood I'm, on so many levels. Man, I'm gonna tell you, like Ed Wood, when I when I'm when I'm like bored or I I I don't have inspiration, I think of Ed Wood. Right. And the cool thing about him is he didn't give a shit. Like no. he made movies with whatever he had. And we have, we can make podcasts, we have cell phones, we have editing on our computers, we have everything we need to make movies, so why the fuck aren't we making That's movies? Right. If Ed Wood can do it using hubcaps as flying saucers, then we can do it, you know? So he's a total inspiration. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see if I can find something and read it to you that I think, Yeah. this is just sort of a meme I found, your art is not how many people like your work, your art is about if your heart likes your work. If your soul likes your work. Yes. If it's about how honest you are with yourself, and you must never trade honesty for relatability. Yeah, and he's Tim Burton has actually said that. He's like, I make my movies for me. Right. And it's great that other people love them, but that's not why I make them. It's cathartic, and he's trying to tell you something. He's yeah. trying to share a piece of his soul with you. This is why I started doing photography. This is why I'm doing this podcast. Right. This is why I want to do music. Like, exactly. 
you know, whether it's, you know, whether it's 15 people that listen to this podcast every week or it's 30 people or it's 100 people or it's a million people. Yeah. It's it's love of the art for the sake exactly. of loving the art. Exactly. You hope that it resonates and it finds a home with other people, but yeah. that's secondary that's, to the joy that it brings you. Yeah, absolutely. And um, you can see that influence from Ed Wood. Yeah. Yeah. You could see that in Tim Burton because yeah. he's the outlier that found success like right away. Right. You know, there wasn't a ton of rejection letters on his part. Yeah. But he should have failed. Yeah. A bunch. He should have. And yeah. he never did. Yeah, exactly. But um I think that's because he just clearly believed and loved how much of his work was his own. On the flip side, with Alice in Wonderland, for whatever reason, it was a little too CGI ish. Yeah. It felt very indulgent. Yes. Like it was very at the peak of it, of like Tim Burton, Johnny Depp, collaboration, indulgence. Yeah. And it didn't quite work for me. It's no. one of those movies I just never have a desire to go back. I barely remember it. Yeah. And the totally. cast was fantastic. And yeah, the, yeah. Visuals, the visual imagery was amazing. Yeah, absolutely. I think the execution... Yeah, just just no, things just didn't work. It feels like reason. it's one of those you know we know this all too well. It's like one of those too many chefs in the kitchen type deal. Could where be. Yeah, you had like twenty executives at the end saying, "No, we gotta do this. We gotta do this. We gotta do this. We do this." But uh, hey, man, it's cool. They got a uh, they got a uh, Alan Rickman in there, so that was good. But then the other film that didn't hit for me, but mm-hmm. I'm warming up to is Dark Shadows. Yeah. Now the problem with Dark Shadows, the movie. Is again, it's a little bit Burton, Johnny Depp, uh, indulgent. Yeah, but but mainly, um, I love the original series. Yeah, a lot. Yeah. I I got turned on to it a so little bit. Good. Yeah, I got turned on to it a little bit later. I mean, certainly well after the original run, but like yeah, before the movie, the remake came out. But but after you know, certainly well after its initial run, like I I got turned on to this series. Someone told me like, hey man. This is a sort of gothic soap opera. Like <laughs> you should check it out. You'll be like yeah. it. I'm like, ah, oh, sure, I'll check it out. And then of course, yeah, like it was right up there. It, to me, it's right up there with like the Munsters or yeah. you know, the, the original Adams Family yeah, show. Yeah, it's so good. Um, the whole all twelve hundred and forty five episodes are on yeah. YouTube. By the way, there's yeah. like two different people that posted all of them. You can watch them. Yeah, but I do think that um, ah, again, I think he missed the mark. Yeah, like, I, it's like he took it and, and it felt like he took the premise of Dark Shadow and he's yeah. like, I'm gonna make a commentary on the 70s. Yes, generally the culture of the 70s. Yeah. And I'm gonna use like Dark Shadows as sort of a way to do that. But yeah. I just felt like the comedy was overdone. I, I have some insight into that as well, if I remember correctly. Uh, so I think one of the first meetings when you know Johnny Depp was on uh jump street 21 jump street back in the day yeah and then one of the first meetings not too long after if i'm not mistaken anyway john tim told johnny hey how do you feel about doing a dark shadows remake and he was like that'd be fucking great and they kind of shelved the idea for a decade or two or whatever and then i believe they were making they were making something else i don't know if it was sweeney todd or frank and weenie or something at the time, and they basically were stealing time from that movie to go make Dark Shadows. So really? they, they kind of were dialing it in, So and it was probably rushed a bit. But but to me, kudos to them because it was kind of like one of those things he wanted to check off his bucket list. He's yeah. like, I have this very extreme fondness for this series that 
anyone who watches it just falls in love with it, right? And he was like, I want to make an homage to that, but I feel like he probably that was also like at the height of his career too. So he's like, fuck it, like I can do whatever I want. I'll well, there's there's an argument. There's an argument. Um, I think I've I've seen it in an in an interview between Johnny Depp and Tim Burton where. Tim Burton always had to pull Johnny Depp back from some weird idea that he had. Like, you know, for like for for Sleepy Hollow, he was like, "No, you can't have a prosthetic nose." And, <laughs> right. Um, it felt like at a certain point in both their careers, no one was pulling each other back, and and yeah. certainly when they worked with each other, there was no one pulling anyone yeah, back. Yeah, just and a so playground. I just feel like I know what it could have been. Yeah. Potentially, like if it, yeah. if it, if the dark, if the Tim Burton Johnny Depp Dark Shadows had the aesthetic of the Tim Burton, Johnny Depp, uh, Sleepy Hollow, or the yeah. Tim Burton, Johnny Depp, Sweeney Todd. Yeah, I think yeah. it would have been one of my favorite films amazing, because it yeah. took this amazing. And I mean, there's so much that works on that film. And Eva Green as his sort of current muse is fantastic. But yeah, let's talk about that. She's she's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> we have not talked about Nightmare Before Christmas. Really, yeah. I think when most people think of Tim Burton, yeah. They think of Nightmare Before Christmas, they even do. if he didn't direct it, because because yeah. he's all over that, right? Because he created every character, down to like everything, and down to the little tiny props. And it's based on a poem he wrote, right? Yeah, I believe it is. Yeah. So, to me, so so for me, like, whoops, that came <laughs> out at like ninety one, ninety two, I think. So I would have been twenty years old, right? Nineteen or twenty, and I remember. Like, I didn't know I was a Tim Ban- Tim Burton fan yet, right? So I kept seeing things over and over and over that I love the aesthetic all. And then, and then, you know, slightly after that, when I was, like, studying film and stuff, I realized everything I love is Tim Burton. It's the same guy that's making yeah, all right. these things. But, but Nightmare Before Christmas is that, you know, annual movie that we can always go to that has such nostalgia and it's it's so much ingrained in culture now that you know every halloween it's played every christmas it's played it's everywhere and it's created this whole cultural phenomenon yeah that is all is a part of us now like that's that's amazing well it's funny we've we've talked about in a few of these films the Maybe some the, the the thing that plagues them is the indulgence, right? Yeah. But I think that this is an instance where the indulgent perfectly hit. Yeah. You know, because this is not, you know, even at this point in his career, stop motion is not. No. It's still not. I mean, it's still not mainstream, but yeah. it's certainly still less acceptable. I mean, to the point that the reason he didn't direct it, I think, is because he was on Mars Attacks. Uh, yeah, he was on something else. I think he was on Mars Attack yeah, yeah. during the making of Nightmare Before Christmas, and yeah. in Mars Attack, he he angled to have the Martians be stop motion. Yes, and they originally were. And um, the studios convinced him to do CG, which actually does very much work in that instance. Yeah, certainly, I don't think that Tim Burton's not capable of using. <laughs> but um, but you know, so he had Henry Selick sort of helm the ship, but you know. Yeah. It's it's so Tim Burton like it's dark. I remember when I was a kid. Yeah. My mom wouldn't let us watch it because yeah. there was the trailer of the two little kids. They opened the packages yeah, on yeah. Christmas. There's like a headless. Yeah, it was, a, it was like a mini a shrunken head. You a know, sure, yeah, homo- shrunken head. Homage to uh, Beetlejuice, and then yeah. I, I don't remember what the other thing There's was. A big snake that comes out. Sure. And the yeah. Wreath, the wreath with the teeth. And my mom just thought it was obscene or something. You know, <laughs> and a true Catholic woman thought that it was the, like the devil's work. <laughs> But um, the crazy thing too, like our friend Elise Robinson actually worked on that. She was one of the fabricators. She did the little like spinning clown and some other stuff. But um, those people like Justin Kahn, 
Uh, it was one. He had another animator that we worked yeah. with, and a bunch of those other guys. Um, they they were the ragtag tag group of San Francisco rejects, kind of like yeah, right, like, like that super small, super arty, super talented community though. But they weren't the mainstream studio. Like they made that up in San Francisco, scraping together, and none of them, no, even to this day, you talk to anybody that was on that, and they say we at the time. It was like super hard job, long hours, very demanding, yeah, um, right. and we never thought it was going to be anything. It was just another really hard job that they never thought was right. Gonna, so people always come to them and they're like, "Oh my God, you worked on Nightmare for Christmas?" And they're like, "Yeah, I have PTSD from working on Nightmare." <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> but but it it became that thing beyond anyone's everyone's expectations. But it wasn't that, and that's kind of cool because that's the whole Tim Burton, you know that's his deal like like yeah, right. taking these people that are fighting against all odds misfits from society like i worked in i lived and worked in san francisco for years and then caught the tail end of the film community in the late 90s early 2000s and it was always the bastard child of la like they the la people hated san francisco in among the film community right. and vice versa because la was like oh you're all too hollywood right. and and san francisco was like super artistic and they're like we don't play by the rules we do it's the home of hate ashbury like fuck you yeah right, we're exactly. artists you know so they were always conflicting and and uh stop motion and henry Selleck found a home there and there was other there was monkey bone and a bunch of other stuff they ended up making there but um yeah so it's, even the story of the making of is a cool concept and it's just it's just like everything came together you know danny elfman doing Oingo Boingo and never doing film composing before Pee-wee and being super apprehensive. And, and even Oingo Boingo, like, they yeah. were, they had a they had a few big hits. Yeah. You know, but they weren't, like, they could have just as easily been Tears for Fears, which, you know, yeah. shout out to Tears for Fears, they're a yeah. band as well, but, like, <laughs> yeah. you know, they could have just been a, a band of that time and for yeah. Tim to be a fan of the band. Yeah. And to recognize yeah. the genius that was behind it musically and yeah. to... To tap and to convince them, yeah, absolutely. To you know, convince Danny to like embark on this thing yeah. that he hadn't done before. Yeah, I mean, all his people like Colleen Atwood. Now she's winning Oscars. Yeah, uh, right. Rick Heinrich, the production designer. Chris Levinson, the editor. He's brought these people from you know somewhat obscurity or just you know the working class, the blue collar of the film world and and now recognize their talents and their work ethic and here they are and now they're all this band of you know it, it's amazing like their family i imagine it's, right. it's just like uh, they, 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 they started like you know like like sort of uh gypsy travelers <laughs> yeah. and ended up being this sort of really successful troupe yeah. of very independently minded people yeah it's great and uh and that i think i think you know that's a sentiment that exists in his films. Yeah. I think that's a sentiment that is Very echoed in his so. in his actions. Yeah. And I think that it's one of those things that has become an enduring trait and what continues to draw people to to him um for you know just to view his movie movies and and what have you but also like allows the studios to keep working with him. Yeah. Because it keeps working. Even the films that maybe don't I mean like we, you and I both don't love Alice, but it made yeah. a lot of money. <laughs> oh yeah, I did. And again, you know, and at the time, I was all about it too. It's just in, you know, uh, looking at the bigger picture sure. of all his movies, you know. But still, and I, I'd still watch it, you know, ninety-five times in a row. Sure, right? Maybe not a hundred. I think 
I, I, I urge people to go take a look at Dumbo, especially if you're an adult, especially yeah. if you're like, you've had a rough week of having to be, yeah. you know, mature and responsible yeah. and deal yeah. with bills and it's tax season when we're recording this and, yeah. you know, all those things. Like if you got two hours of your day, two and a half hours of the day and you just want to escape that for a moment. And that's, a, that's a very good point. Like, I feel like Tim is the master of escapism. Like, like some movies you go to see now and and even like halfway through you're like checking your watch or you're like i'm gonna go take a piss or go to the bathroom but whatever like like tim's world or it worlds are completely immersive you know like and he's like i feel like he's the closest to the sun right now as far as like capturing that even closer than you (laughs) yeah that's what always older than me that's right he's circling a little bit faster yeah he's actually born 95 (laughs) exactly but you're right. You're right. He he's able to sort of capture that sentiment, and um, yeah. I was really happy with the movie Dumbo. I know we haven't talked on it a ton, but I yeah. think it, because it's fresh, I don't want to I don't want to spoil a lot of things. All I want to yeah. say is I think that if you, I think you'll be very surprised. I think that it's the kind of film that you'll walk out of if you allow yourself to. The cool thing that I saw in lots of behind the foot scenes footage and articles about Dumbo is. Tim was insistent on again, and you know where he's at now in his stardom and and power in Hollywood. He can he can do these things because they know his movies are going to pay back. Is he wanted most of the sets to be practical, so they went to Pinewood and they built that giant yep. city of that tent city of circus and yep. everything, almost all practically, with exception of you know skies and and yeah. extensions. And you and could stuff. see that, yeah, you could see it, and every. Interview I've seen with Michael Keaton, Danny DeVito, everybody, Derek, everybody says it, you just walk onto this magical world that's yeah. real. It's right in front of you. It's tangible. And that's same, kind of the same thing back to his stop motion animation thing. Like he's like he's like the anti-CGI, uh, the hero we need. Yeah, well, he, I think, you know, there's a scene in the movie where the, um, the circus troupe moves into this sort of amusement park-esque oh yeah you know which is obviously a, a nod to disneyland especially tomorrowland yeah tomorrowland totally and the haunted mansion area and what have you yeah but um that's the vision of tim burton right yeah that, the vision is is that he's able to immerse you into a world yeah it's his world yeah You're, we're all visiting it and hopefully if yeah. we open our minds to it we can relate to it on some level you know like i want to live there yeah i want to go even like willy wonk charlie and the chocolate factory God, that movie, it's just aesthetically so pleasing. Sure. Snowflakes in the beginning and little trucks delivering chocolate and the giant chimneys of the factory are like, yeah. fuck, this is mind-blowing, you know? There's something kind of great about losing yourself in an environment that is you know, yeah. extraordinary. Yeah. That's what filmmaking at its best is able to do. Yes. It's able to inspire you. It's yeah. able to immerse you. It's yeah. able to leave you connecting on an intimate level with the yeah. characters presented. Yeah. One of them. Right. If not all of them. It has to be relatable. Yeah. But it's also escapism at its finest. I think, you know, this this is this episode is very celebratory of Tim Burton and I think because we're both My big life fans, is celebratory of Tim Burton. And I, yeah. I mean, <laughs> you, you know, you're wearing an Edward Scissorhands shirt as we speak. <laughs> not even not, not even planned. Not even planned. The Just, funny thing is one like he, you know, this whole thing about Bella Lugosi and Edward love Bella Lugosi and and then Tim Burton love Vincent price and then i loved tim burton it's like a it's like a perpetual thing of you have these 
you know, mentors or people that inspire you. That's right. And he was all about that, and I'm all about that. Maybe someday I'll inspire some young pup, and it's just like the perpetual artistic thing, passing the baton or whatever. That's right. One of the elements of filmmaking that that is really important that we maintain is the the idea of immersive storytelling. And I, I can't think of a better filmmaker than Tim Burton to sort of celebrate that that technique yeah. with. And I'll, I'll add to that, ars gratia artis, art for art's sake. So go out there and make your art. That doesn't matter what people think about it. Tim Burton certainly doesn't give a shit what people think about his art. It just happens to be one of the most successful filmmakers of all time. But So go make your art. Do it. Don't let anybody stop you. You've been listening to the Grindhouse Podcast on the Booze and Burton Network. Please follow us on Instagram at Grindhouse Podcast and listen to us every Monday on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher and wherever all fine podcasts can be found.